Thanks for watching this episode of Turning to Him. I invite you to just take a few seconds right now at the beginning and subscribe to this channel so that you can get more videos like this in your feed. Thanks again. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Turning to Him. My name is Zach Batty, and I am here with Sarah Harris. Sarah is a 19-year-old BYU student who is currently studying nursing and spends her spare time uh, doing homework and running her small business, playing the piano, and listening to music, and being uh, with us. So Sarah, thanks so much for doing this. It's really nice to meet you. So nice to meet you, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself other than the bio that that we just read. Yeah, okay, so my name's Sarah. Um, not, not too much about me, honestly. I feel like I was super active in high school, but now that I'm at college, it's all kind of fizzled out. I did um, competitive choir in high school. Um, I played tennis. Loved that. Just so much fun. Um, honestly, I've played every sport that you could probably name off. <laughs> Swim, basketball, um, kind of did it all. Volleyball. But now that I'm in college, I'm just kind of hanging out. I'm a medical assistant, so working towards that nursing degree. Um, I'm working as a medical assistant, and I love that. I really do love that. Um, but yeah, not too much. <laughs> uh, how'd you get into medicine? How'd you find an interest there? It's super interesting because I feel like both my parents um, from pretty young age were like, you know, we don't really care what you do as long as you, you know, know what you want and we'll support you through whatever. And even as like a little kid, I've always loved medicine. Like there's this picture of me in like third grade holding up a sign that says, I want to be a pediatrician when I grow up. I don't want to be a pediatrician anymore, but like even as like a little kid, medicine was just so appealing to me. So I decided on nursing because I wanted to be a mom too. And I figured that was going to be the most flexible, but hopefully maybe in the near future, not near future, but like later on when my kids are out of the house that I don't have, um, <laughs> I'll <laughs> working towards maybe being a nurse practitioner, but we'll see. Okay. Now do nurse practitioners have specialists or specializations like doctors do? Yeah, so they can specialize in different areas. Um, so like I worked for a nurse practitioner who um, specialized in internal medicine. Um, so yeah, they can totally have specialties. Um, I'm do not you sure. have a preference? I don't, I, yeah, that's the thing is I don't know. Um, I definitely love ER, ICU, kind of intense stuff, but I also love mental health and working in the mental health aspect of, um, of health because mental health is health and it should be incorporated when it comes to... Um, you know, your, your regular doctor visits. So yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned you were really active, uh, in high school. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Arizona. Um, if you don't know where, like too much about Arizona, like Phoenix is kind of like right in the middle ish. And then I was, I grew up like right West of it. So I grew up in Peoria, Arizona. Peoria, Arizona. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what about before high school? What were you like as a, as a young kid? I mean, minus holding up signs saying you want to be a pediatrician. <laughs> um, my grandma loves to tell the story of how um, she'd take me to the park. And then I ran up to her crying and was just like, someone didn't want to be my friend. So even as a little kid, I just, I just love people. And um, yeah, I'm, I've always been a people person. So yeah. <laughs> uh, is your family still in Arizona? Yes. My family's still in Arizona. I've got an old the brother who's up here at the Y with me. So that's really fun. But most of my family is in Arizona. My grandparents are there. Um, I've got other grandparents um, in Idaho, but we're, we've born and raised in Arizona, basically. Okay. Uh, what brought you to BYU then? 
you know what? People ask me that, and I'm not always sure because my mom went to Ricks, which is now BYU Idaho. Um, but my dad went to ASU. Um, I don't know actually. Okay. <laughs> Both my brother and I go here, and it, it's super fun to like be up here with him. Um, but it's also nice to just be somewhere where the people around you also share your standards. Um, so that's really nice, and like your everything is supported here. It's like you want to go on a mission, awesome. We'll we'll help you get there. You want to be a nurse, we'll get help you get there. And um, so that, I really like that. Good. Oh, yeah. good. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, I mean, you, you so you mentioned BYU. Uh, everyone uh, has similar standards and things like that. I assume you remember the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I am. <laughs> did you grow up in the church? I actually did grow up in the church. Um, I've definitely had my own journey when it comes to, um, you know, the transition from being at home and like you go to church every Sunday because your parents want you to go and and they want you to kind of be on the same path that they were to transitioning to living on my own and choosing to go to church for myself. So um, that was definitely a little different, but definitely something that I am super grateful for to have grown up in the church and to have had that my whole life. Um, I'm, I really am grateful for that. Yeah. I always like to say, look, everybody's a convert, whether absolutely in the or not, everybody's a convert. So that's fantastic. Um, when we were speaking before, you mentioned that you wanted to share some experiences about uh, an eating disorder that you yeah. yeah, absolutely. So yeah. my eating disorder, yeah, go for it. Go ahead. I was just gonna give us some background first. Like, when did it start? And I think you were you were going there, and then I cut you off. Yeah, no, you're totally okay. So I developed an eating disorder when I was 12. I was in eighth grade, um, so I was pretty young. But um, I, what I was going to say was that my eating disorder definitely played a role in that transitional period from living at home and relying on my parents' testimony. I always know, knew that the church was true. I never struggled with knowing that. But developing a testimony of my own in regards to the atonement, my eating disorder played entirely into that. Okay. So talk, describe your life as an 11-year-old. Oh, man, I wish I could. That's the thing about eating disorders is that you don't remember much. Okay. <laughs> but um, 11-year-old, I, I had a lot of friends. Um, Pre-eating pre disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so long ago. Um, <laughs> I know. It's so sad. Um, so yeah, it was really social, really. Um, I think I think the biggest thing that I struggled with was like self-confidence, but everyone goes through that when they're in like their junior high age, their seventh, eighth grade and middle school. It's just not a very fun time. <laughs> um, I think that transition to trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do um, with myself as a person um, kind of sparks that. Okay. So um, it sounds like, I mean, growing up, you have a supportive family. You've got, uh, I'm assuming, good friends you've got kind of this this great network around you so 12 years old eating disorder how did you how did you get into it what do you think started it so my dad asked me that question a lot he's like oh we want to make sure that your siblings that this doesn't happen like how can we prevent that and i unfortunately i don't think there is a lot to do to prevent that like you have um I, it definitely has a lot to do with who your friends are and who you are surrounding yourself with at the time, I was I a lot of my friends were struggling with you know suicide and and self harm and even at such a young age, but it was something that it was such a a topic of conversation and it was normalized. I feel like so for me, um, at such a like 
like little kids are sponges. They absorb everything around them. And at a time when I was just so malleable and like, like, you know, when you're taking everything in and um, it was easy for me to kind of accept what my friends were saying before you think your friends are cool. You think you want to be like your friends. So even if your parents are saying one thing and later on, you know, they're right. um, You want to be like your friends. And unfortunately at the time I did have friends who were struggling and it was easy for me to, I guess, relate to them if I struggled too. Okay. That's interesting. Does Uh, that kind of make sense? (laughs) Yeah. So can I ask what was the eating disorder? So I had a combination of both anorexia and bulimia. Okay. Okay. Anorexia and bulimia. So if what I think I hear you saying is you didn't necessarily start, I'll I'll say experimenting with anorexia and bulimia because of maybe poor self-esteem or body image issues. Well, I think I missed, I think I might've misspoke a little bit um, in terms of, in terms of that. I definitely struggled with body image and I think a lot for a lot of people, including myself, that's where it starts. It starts yeah. with, I don't like how I look. I want to look differently. Um, I'm going to start exercising more, maybe dieting more. And that's kind of where it started for me. And then it morphed into something completely, completely different. It's no longer about your appearance. It's no longer about your looks. It's about control. And it's about, it really is at the very root of it about control. You know, it's like, I feel like everything else in my life is chaotic and out of control. And this is the one thing that I can hold on to. So when I lose a tennis match, it's something that I can turn to when it's when um, I lose a friend to suicide or there's a death some point. It's something I can turn to. And that was eventually what it became. So it was less about the I'm using it to relate to other people. Like I I kind of mentioned, I didn't really mean it that way. It was more of like. Like. I know the people around me are experiencing this and it seems to be working for them. I'm going to try to mimic it and try to see what I can do for that. So, I mean, they were struggling with self-harm and suicide and I tried it. I didn't like it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. for me, so I was like, it's weird because like some people will try having any sort of, no, it's not really how that works, but like, you find different coping mechanisms that aren't really coping mechanisms, but you find ones that work. So for my friends, some of them preferred cutting and burning and other forms of self-harm. And I didn't like it as much. Um, it didn't seem to like do the trick um, or give me the control that I wanted. And I gravitated more towards this eating disorder. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's worth noting right now that I am not a, trained therapist. I, That's I don't okay. <laughs> you are a trained therapist. So really we're just two people sharing our experiences and our observations. And Absolutely. hopefully somebody gets some help out of that. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah. really, you know, bottom line is look, right now if you're considering self-harm in, in any way, shape, or form, we invite you to speak to your parents or speak to uh professionals, speak to a counselor, definitely speak to your your bishop or your branch president or anything along those lines. Um, and hopefully, hopefully this conversation can help out in some at the way. Very, at the very least, reach out to somebody that you trust. For me at that age, it was really hard for me to have a conversation like that with my parents. Our, our relationship has completely changed and I would be able to have a conversation with my parents. But at 12, bringing something like that to them was really scary. So if you can't, at the very least, reach out to somebody who can support you, if even if that's a friend, if that's a teacher, 
like later on in high school, my choir teacher became truly one of my biggest supports and that's okay. Just don't keep it inside. Yep. Yep. For sure. You got to have a team around you. So it's, it's interesting. Um, I used to be a bishop. And so I've talked with a lot of people who struggle in various different ways. And it was always interesting to me that there are similarities between whatever our coping mechanisms are. And when you said it became about control, that always uh, surprised me. Fascinated is the wrong word, but it always surprised me that it seemed like whether you were struggling with cutting or eating disorders or pornography or drinking or anything, it oftentimes came down to almost exactly what you said. Everything else in my life is chaotic. I don't feel in control, but I can control this and I can do this. And this is my coping mechanism. And I get to decide I'm in charge in this world. I get to decide this. Absolutely. And a lot of the times that people um, who don't struggle with addiction, and even though there are a lot of people who can understand that kind of aspect of it, um, drinking numbs pain, mm-hmm. just like eating disorders do. Eating disorders um, quite literally wipe out emotion. Your body is super, super focused on survival and survival only, that there is not a lot of room for your calories to go towards um, emotions and um, feelings. You're really just focused on surviving. So for me, that was great because I felt like I had to fit this mold of I have to always be happy. I have to always, you know, be this bubbly person that people want to be around. Otherwise, I'm not going to have any friends. So it was so easy for me to be in a position where I couldn't really feel anything. And so it was so easy to fake it. It was so easy because I didn't have any other combating emotions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you think that pressure came from for you to fit this mold? Was that internal? Was that external for you? I think um, growing up, I definitely felt like I definitely don't want to throw my parents under the bus because they did not mean any of the way that I interpreted things. Um, I I definitely blamed them for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. I was angry at them. I didn't want to talk to them. They were the ones taking me to and from appointments as kind of like my accountability buddy. And I was so angry because I was like, you're taking away this thing from me. I feel like you're ruining my life. This is all your fault. And that's not even, that wasn't even the case. So it's very hard for me to say something that I interpreted differently without it sounding like I'm blaming them. Um, But I feel like a lot of times my dad was trying to help me be social. And he's like, Hey, sir, like people want to be around you more when you're happy and when you're, and you want to be, which makes sense. Like if, if you're not super close with somebody, um, it can be a little off putting if you're just kind of sitting over there in the corner. Um, And I get that. But at the time I was like, Oh, I'm never going to have any friends if I, if I'm not happy, if I'm not that person that, you know, my family wants me to be or what I thought my family wanted me to be um, and what people around me wanted to be at like mutual and stuff, mutual activities. That was really hard. Um, so it came from kind of like a twisted, um, I'm supposed to be like the happy Mormon girl and, and the person that everybody wants to be around. Um, my dad always complimented me. He's like, you're so approachable. Like the reason that you get you know, asked out on dates by people that you might not typically want to go out with is because they feel comfortable approaching you and having a conversation with you. And I always took that as a compliment, um, regardless of whether or not it was truly me. It was just the person that I thought people wanted to be around. Yeah. 
isn't it interesting that extremes in almost any form are bad? So absolutely, and, and that they start as a kernel of truth. You know, for yeah. example, an eating disorder. Hey, we should be healthy, healthy with our bodies. And thankfully, in North America, most of us have too much food to eat, so we should maybe eat less food. Okay, I'm not <laughs> eating any food. Well, no, no, that's not what I said. No, well, no. <laughs> You should be happy. Happy is being a good thing. Okay, well, then I'm always going to be happy 100% of the time. No, that's that's not it either. You know, so yeah. it's, it's always interesting. All right. Um, I feel like I fast forwarded through the timeline. Let's do okay. yeah. the foundation. Okay, so 12 years old, uh, you have some friends that are uh, involved in self-harm as a coping mechanism. You said that you experiment a little bit with cutting, a little bit with burning. That didn't help you cope. That wasn't that didn't fill your need. And mm-hmm. so uh, eating disorders did. Yeah. For how long did you for how long did you struggle with it with nobody knowing? Or did your friends always know so, was this the, the friend group that you were in? This is the scary part. I'm not even going to lie. It's pretty scary. So I came out to my parents about my sophomore year of high school. So I had been struggling with about for about three years and they didn't know. Um. Even then, when I had reached out and said, hey, I'm struggling, I got to the point where I had like two therapy appointments and I was like, I'm not into this whole recovery thing. I'm just going to tell them I'm fine. And bless uh, bless their hearts. I cannot imagine raising me. <laughs> I was so mean to them when I was um, in the whole recovery process. But like I said, it was super easy for me to like be happy and stuff when I when nobody knew about it. So I was just like, I am rocking the boat by recovering. So I am going to kind of stay in my little bubble so when I told them I was fine it was okay like because they thought I was doing fine my friends knew my friends were terrified I felt so bad <laughs> they were terrified um but for terrified me for you because of your health oh yeah it was so I did not the thing about eating disorders is that you can almost never tell if somebody's struggling with an eating disorder by their appearance okay like you can't um and that's something that definitely the media and um, society kind of doesn't like if you look if I asked you to imagine somebody who hasn't eaten sort of you most likely are thinking of a female someone who's very very thin and mm-hmm. looks unwell mm-hmm. that is like less than one percent of cases when it comes to eating disorders um, anorexia is actually one of the least common eating disorders that there is binge eating disorder is actually the most common um, and okay. there are so many other eating disorders there's bulimia there's um, pica disorder which is like um, it's you, you, um, cr- your body kind of craves like things that aren't food, which is a little interesting. There's bulimia, there's diabulimia, which is, um, which is an eating disorder associated with diabetes and the restriction of insulin, um, which is like something your body needs, especially when you're, when you have diabetes. Um, there are just so many, there's orthorexia, which is an addiction to exercise. And okay. there are just so many other eating disorders that are, are common um that aren't talked about because of like this kind of picture that the media pushes so I didn't look like I had an eating disorder so that's why I was able to get away with it for so long okay Um, if that makes sense so my parents were able to be like oh she looks fine like if she had an eating disorder like we would be like oh you could tell yeah you could so that kind of played into it And, and I guess that makes it even scarier because you don't always know because you can't tell when they don't, they don't look like they have an eating disorder. So. so it was very easy for you to, especially since now you're practiced at faking emotion also, or, or putting on a happy face. It's <laughs> easy for you to say, 
hey, two counseling sessions, mom and dad, thanks very much. I'm fixed. You fixed that's me. Exact, that's exactly how it went. And because I, I can imagine how scary it must have been, they're like, oh, good. Like, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Like, thank goodness, like, it's fixed. Like, we can move on from that. I would have been terrified. Like, if my, if my kid came up to me and I had no experience with eating disorders or anything whatsoever, I would have been terrified. Like, how do I help? They said they're good. Perfect. I'm going to step away because they're fixed now. Because I think a lot of the times when things that we don't understand and things are scary, a lot of times, even though we want to help, we don't really want to go near it. <laughs> so right. what made like, you oh, go ahead? Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I wouldn't, didn't have anything to say. What made you talk to your parents in the first place? Um, I think I was probably to the point where my friends were like, we're going to tell them if you don't. Okay. And so I, it I was wasn't like, 100% your choice. No, definitely not. Um, at least not the first time. Um, okay. Definitely not the first time. So I struggled with my eating disorder for seven years. So from the time that I was 12 to about the time... Um, right about the time before I turned 18, I mean, turned 19, sorry. So first time you come to your parents with this, if I remember you're 14 years old. Yeah, I was about 14. 14. And it is because your friends who are well-meaning, they, they're worried about you. They care about you. Oh, I had, I had the greatest friends in the world. <laughs> they were they, wonderful. They say either you're telling them or we're telling them, but either way, this is happening. Yep. You go to you go to two therapy sessions. You feel like you're rocking the boat. This is not this is not for you. Recovery is yep. not for you. Nope. So you say, I'm fine. <laughs> what happens next now? I'm free to go back to my ways and just keep it to myself. Keep it from your friends also? Um, yeah, for a good portion of the time. I, I did keep it from them. Um yeah. Okay. What, what happens next? What's the next checkpoint in your story? Well, so I that relapse. I mean, you just relapse over and over and over again. The thing with eating disorders is that you can't, you know, anorexia, you can't not eat for seven years. And like, that's not how that works. Like, yeah. it definitely comes like in ebbs and flows of like, you're doing okay in recovery. And we've closed this chapter. We've closed this chapter on life with the eating disorder and we can move on. No, it comes back a month later or weeks later. Um, but it definitely like does it does this. And yeah. so it, it obviously comes back, relapse over and over and over again. Um, but I think a turning point for me was when I got to the summer before my junior year of high school. Um, my tennis coach was he didn't know either. Basically nobody knew. Um, and he didn't find out until I had gotten to treatment and he was like, why aren't you posting on social media? And I'm like, Oh, about that. <laughs> um, anyway, so going back to my summer before my junior year, he was prepping me to be varsity one. So if you don't know how tennis works, um, your varsity one plays the other school's varsity one and the varsity two plays the other school varsity two. So he was prepping me to play varsity one, go to state and everything. And so for me, I was going to two a day practices. I was going to the gym on top of that. And I was like, this is great. I'm never home. No one has to keep me accountable for not eating and for not, you know, I can keep all of this to myself. And no one has to know. My coach thinks I'm rocking it because I am always at practice. I'm always at the gym. I'm always sending. He would keep make us send like um, videos of us practicing to like keep us accountable. I was always sending my videos. I was always doing my practice swings and everything. Like I, and I was the team captain too. So I was always, 
hitting all these check check marks of like mm-hmm. goals that I had set for myself, but I wasn't actually enjoying them. If that makes sense. Okay. Like these are all dreams that I had always wanted to, I had never played tennis until I got into high school and, but it became something that I just absolutely fell in love with um, for, for good and bad reasons. Um, but definitely that transition from junior to senior, from sophomore to junior year, when I had like was training to be varsity one, that was definitely like a turning point for me. Um, I was not doing well. <laughs> um, everyone thought I was, I was on top of the world um, yeah. in terms of all the activities. I was in my school's um, competition choir. I was, you know, historian of or secretary of a bunch of other clubs on campus like I was living the dream but at home I was just I was just miserable okay Um, now up until this point in the story I hear you say words like recovery and relapse and remission me those are words for someone who sees that there's a problem and is trying to get out of it is that true for you or were you happy with your eating disorder you're like hey this is my life this is working great for me it's so interesting that you say that because it definitely changes um, from moment to moment. You you think about like your wedding and you're like, I don't really want to spend my wedding counting the calories in my wedding cake, like and be worrying about how I look in a dress. Like, I don't want that. I want to be able to have kids one day. That was a that was honestly one of the scariest things for me is that I wasn't going to be able to have kids because of like the behaviors that I was engaging in. But then at, at other points, you're just like, I don't care. Like, I get something out of this. The thing with addiction that people sometimes don't understand is that you don't develop addictions because they're fun. Mm -hmm. You develop addictions and you develop disorders, some disorders, like you can't develop ADHD, but like you don't, you develop addictions and eating disorders because they give you something. They meet a need that isn't being met. Like you don't develop an eating disorder if you didn't need it. For some of us, it is a form of survival. If that makes sense. Yes, it's killing you, but you're surviving. Yeah. You know, I think that's worth saying again, because like you said, I don't think a lot of people understand that you form addictions. And, and of course there are always corner cases. There are always exceptions. Absolutely. If that doesn't apply to you, that does not mean you're broken. It doesn't mean that like you don't have an eating disorder. You don't have an addiction. That's not how that works. But for a lot of people, that's how it is. Most part you, you form an addiction because it fills a need for you that is not being filled somewhere else. Absolutely. That's again, that's worth everybody just taking a minute and thinking about and saying, okay, what need is this filling for me? And is there a more healthy way to get that need filled? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and that's what it is, is that it, it is people don't develop addictions because they're fun. I didn't wake up one day and I'm just like, this is exactly how I want to live my I'm life. For stop eating. This is great. Yeah, I'm just going to stop eating. This is going to be great. <laughs> but okay. that's not how that works. I, I, you know, you wake up and you're just like, I feel less. Um, I don't have to think about the depression. I don't have to think about the anxiety. If I'm not feeling anything else, mm-hmm. this is a numbing thing. Like it's numbing completely. And you get addicted to not feeling because you don't ever feel sad you don't feel all the bad feelings and that's that's great (laughs) yeah okay so your your high school career up until your junior year you're going through this tug of war like i would say most addicts are saying look i know this isn't healthy behavior i'm gonna stop to uh, i don't care 
it's it's filling the scene. I'm gonna do this. And you're going through this tug of war. You said your junior year, you're training for V1, something happens, something changes in you because you're not happy with any of this. Yeah. Um I have to say that it, it gets to a point where it's just you you're waking up and doing the same thing over and over again and you're not getting anything out of it. Um I should have been thrilled. I think if I had if I'm where I if I was where I am now and was experiencing that, I would have been on top of the world. But like I wasn't I don't have a lot of memories from that time. I have a lot of pictures and I'm just like, oh yeah, I mean I kind of remember that. But it's not something that kind of goes into your memory bank and you like cherish that because you don't have the ability to. And so good times are not meaningful anymore because your body isn't focused on making and maintaining memories and um, cherishing those things that should be cherished. And is so focused on just surviving that like everything else is just not part of the question. It's not part of the equation. Okay. Um, talk to me about during this period before this main turning point, uh, what is your relationship with the savior? I mean, I go to seminary every morning. Like I was, I was seminary president. Again, it it goes into that. It was very easy for me to be the person everyone wanted to me. I wasn't saying my prayers. I wasn't really reading my scriptures. I mean, I would go to seminary and I would say things that people wanted me to say. And it felt fine because I was just being the person everyone wanted me to be. I always knew the church was true. I never struggled with the testimony of that, which is why I was like, yeah, I'll go to seminary. Like, yeah. it's not it's not that hard for me to, like, I'm not combating my parents. with like, no, I don't want to go to seminary. This is stupid. It was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go to seminary. And like, I have a calling to do so I can play the piano when they need me to. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but I think definitely when it comes to developing your own testimony of the atonement, especially the atonement of Jesus Christ, you have to experience it a point in your life when you are way too weak to stand. When you can't stand, you have to find the strength on your knees. You have to. Yes. All right. So at this point, is it fair to say that you have a superficial relationship with the Savior, at least for this chapter yeah, in your life? Absolutely. Yeah. I knew who my Savior was, but um, I'm not sure if he if he passed me on the street. I'm not entirely sure if i'd be like oh i know exactly who that is yes Um, but i mean that's where i was at that point yes all right so you hit this kind of emotional low then where you are saying look everything my life is checking all of the boxes like i am killing it yeah and i'm not happy i don't i'm just kind of blah about life i'm just existing it's not it's not living you're existing all right so what do you do so um I just kind of kept going, just kind of going through the, and it wasn't until my senior year that I was just like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, And and unfortunately for a lot of people, you don't get that. Um, It really is just such a comfort zone of just, I like it here. I don't have to change. I don't have to feel feelings. I like this. I get it's damaging, but like, it's too scary to go outside and it's terrifying. It's the scariest thing in the world to take that first step. But like I said earlier, I was confiding in my choir director and um, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, he understood mental health like nobody else. And I think the the day that I was like, crap, I actually have to, I had to do something about this was when I was like, I'm just not hungry anymore. And I'm just, I'm just, I don't, 
care anymore. And he was like, Sarah, you have an addiction. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went home and I told my mom that night. I was like, it, it was kind of like the borderline between um, I'm terrified of what's going to happen if I don't do anything, but I'm terrified to give this thing up. So that night I went home and told my mom. Um, and she, I mean, obviously she was floored. She was like, I thought we'd taken care of this. Like, have you been struggling with it this whole time? And, um, I felt bad saying, yes, I'm not even sure I told her the truth, but, um, I ended up getting help very quickly. My parents, I think that the, definitely the second time around, they're like, okay, we got to make sure that this is, this sticks. Um, so yeah, I started going to treatment, not treatment, but I started going to therapy um, twice a week, I started seeing a dietitian, um, and they were wonderful people. They were super, they were wonderful. Um, they weren't members of the church. And that's something that I feel like a lot of times that a lot of people, they kind of gravitate towards members of the church. Like, um, I want you to tell me what to do. And when it comes to like the church, but I think for me in a position where I wasn't like clinging on to the atonement, like I should have been, being able to be told like kind of like worldly things was a lot easier for me to accept at the time than if somebody came up to me and said, just pray it away. Like if you just pray, like it'll, like, it'll be fine. Yeah. Like if somebody had said that to me, I had been like, no, <laughs> like yeah, that's, yeah. It, it doesn't usually work like that. Um, for some people it does and that's awesome for them. But for me in that point, I would have been furious. <laughs> um, Cause I think, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, so what makes this time different is this time you were ready for it. This time it was self-initiated, right? I mean, you, you received some motivation from your choir director. Right. But it sounds like you were, you were ready to make a change. You wanted a change. True. I think, um, deep down, I definitely wanted it. Um, but I think, and a lot of times in recovery, we talk about, um, Ed, Ed being like a different persona mm -hmm. of your eating disorder. So that way it's not like entirely on you there's this book called life without ed it's a wonderful book so if you have any questions about eating disorders go read that book it's wonderful um but i think a lot of it comes down to having to separate yourself from the eating disorders like what does sarah want sarah wants to be a nurse sarah wants to you know be a mom sarah wants to go on a mission sarah wants to do all these things ed couldn't care less about that ed you know, cares about what you ate for dinner. He cares about how you're going to burn it off. Um, he cares about, you know, all of these things. And so at some point you have to recognize like Sarah wants something different than Ed and you can't have both. So it was a matter of choosing which one I wanted to listen to. Um, and that was tremendously difficult because you live with these thoughts and you live with Ed for six, seven years. And it's like, I don't want to just give that up. Like, yeah. Uh, like I've been listening. Companion. He's a jerk. I, I've, been, I've, been, there. I've been living with him for however many years. And though in the book, she describes it, the author, she's wonderful, Jenny Schaefer. She describes it as an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. It's somebody who is telling you what to do, is telling you, you know, what you should wear, what you should eat, what you should, how you should exercise, and all these things. And you always just keep coming back to him because there's always just something there. If if you have been in an abusive relationship, um, you understand that. It's hard to just walk away from. They give you something. There's something that you get from that relationship. There's something that is, is fulfilling to you. Either you feel like you're fixing them. You feel like you are um, a support for them. 
you, you're getting something out of it. You're getting validation from it. You're getting something from this relationship. Yeah, it's abusive. And it's terrible. But what are you getting from it? Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, going back to what we talked about before of people form addictions because they have a need that isn't being filled. Absolutely. And so just because you recognize the addiction doesn't mean that that need has gone away. And of course needs, not. That needs, right. that need needs to be filled with something else and something healthier. A hundred percent. And it's, it's that, um, so in your brain, you get used to taking the same pathway of just like, that's how I'm going to cope. That's how I'm going to cope. That's, and that's, that, that's your, um, your go-to. You have to form new pathways and that takes a long time. You have to form new pathways so that no longer becomes your go-to. You have to turn to the meditation, the, um, the prayer, the scripture study is like your new pathway or that's, I mean, it doesn't go away like that, that option is always going to be there, but you have to like form the new pathway so that these ones become your go-to. Um, I was a senior in high school when I first started recovery. I don't know if I would even call it recovery. It was like my halfway. Like I was like, I'm going to give something up, but I can't give everything. So that lasted for about a year. Um, I, they, they tried to do intensive outpatient and like kind of, but I was just, I was still so scared to just give this up. Um, I tried really hard. Like it was, and um, I never want people to think that because somebody has an addiction or they, I met so many people who uh, this was like their third, fourth time in treatment. And it's never because they don't try. It's never because they're not strong enough. And it's never because of that. It's because they are trying and it gets so difficult and so painful to continue because it's something you have to choose every day. And if you, if just one day you're just like, oh, I just don't want to, I'm just so tired. Mm-hmm. It just it brings you right back down and it's really hard. So to anybody struggling with addiction and, and eating disorder or anything like that along those lines of, if you come back to it, it's not, it doesn't mean you're weak. It just means that you're getting used to trying to find something new. So yeah. I never anybody I met I just like I had to go back to treatment I'm just like great go back to treatment like I'll support you the whole way because like it's not something that you're just letting go like if it was as simple as just eat or stop doing that there would be no need for therapists and for treatment centers like it's not that simple um and everyone would do it like um so yeah yeah I think um for those who find themselves giving advice like that, such as, we'll just eat. Um, I wonder if those people have ever struggled with an addiction before. And I, I was actually, they, yeah. yeah, I was I, actually I talking to my dad. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. <laughs> so, so I was talking with my dad on the, um, just before I got on here. Um, and he was like, for me, it was like something that I'd never experienced. And I was just like, well, just don't do that. Like just eat. And so for some people that it, it does seem that simple. Like if you're, if you're struggling with, with drugs or other addictions, it's like, well, just stop doing that. And it's like, no, that's not how that works. <laughs> um, yeah. If it was that easy, like there would be no need for, for professionals. And I think a lot of times for people who don't struggle with addiction, that does seem to be the logical, our, the logical parts of our brains are 
able to just be like, we'll just eat. It's not that big of a deal. It's just food. It's not poison. Um, but the emotional side of our brains are like, no, no, no. Like if I do that, like I will lose control. I will not like, I'll have to feel and I'll like, I don't want that. Like if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you are now a senior in high school. You are, um, if I'm remembering correctly, kind of half-heartedly trying to go through recovery. Very half-heartedly. Um, I definitely had some good times. I had bad times when I just relapsed and was just like, I don't care anymore. Um, but it it wasn't until my freshman year of college and I had just kind of fallen into this really big depression. I was trying to eat normally and I was on my own for the first time. And I just, I just stopped trying. I was like, I don't really see a point. Um, I just, because when you fall into a depression, it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to make your own meals. And so at that point, I was just like, I don't really care anymore. Um, and it was at that point that I was like, I have never maintained recovery for more than a few months, maybe at most. And when I was talking with my therapist at the time, she was like, this isn't good. Like, um, you haven't been able to maintain recovery for long enough ever. (laughs) And my whole year period of trying, I was never able to maintain it. So she was like, I think that we need a higher level of care. And I, I had never thought, um, that I would have qualified for a higher level of care, like an inpatient or, um, RTC, which is like a residential treatment. I was like, I don't look sick. I'm not sick. Like, I don't look like the people who need to go get feeding tubes. And that was a misconception that I had was that like, I had to look that way. I had to struggle that way to go there. And that's not even the case. I got there. There were lots of girls who looked like me and that, um, but I did like an assessment with them and they were like, yeah, you need to get here right away. Didn't have anything to do with my weight, (laughs) which honestly made me feel really good. Because, um, like I said, eating they're eating disorders. They're not weight disorders. They have to do with your eating behaviors, not the number on the scale, which is what a lot of people, including myself, obsessed over. Um, so I ended up going to treatment, and I, I was still at a point where I was angry with my parents. So I wanted to get a blessing before I'd gone, and I asked my older brother to give it to me. And so he gave me the blessing, and my dad was there. And he, I was promised that if I turned to Jesus Christ and I turned to his atonement, it would get easier. And I was like, perfect. I will do whatever I need to do to make this easier because this is the worst thing in the entire world. You get there and you just spend weeks just crying and you're just miserable and you're terrified. And, I, and it gets to a point where you really are clinging. You are clinging to, you know, you know this book that I brought with me that has my testimony in the beginning of like, I don't know what's going to happen here and I'm scared, but I'm just going to do whatever I can because I was promised that if I tried that it would get easier. Do you, do you feel like you hit rock bottom? Absolutely. I had, I I had no hope. I didn't think I'd ever be able to live a life free of it. And I, I really was terrified. I was so scared. Compare your relationship to the Savior at that point, or may- maybe two months into this, where you've been relying on Him now to your relationship with the Savior in high school. 
I definitely knew who my savior was and I would, you know, I'd feel the spirit and I would, you know, get teary eyed and, and, you know, be like, oh, that's just how the spirit speaks to me. And it was like, I knew it was true, but to know that it's true is different than having a testimony. I think like I knew that my savior died for me. I knew that, um, people who, you know, sinned, they, they have, they have the chance to repent. I didn't know that the atonement went any further than just repentance. I didn't know that the atonement had the ability to reach me at a point in my life where there was no light. There was no light. I was at rock bottom. I didn't see that there was any hope for me. And I didn't know that the atonement had the ability to reach me at that point because I didn't feel like I had to repent for anything. Um, but that's how far as that, that's as far as I thought the atonement went was that it's just there for you to repent. And that's not even true. The atonement became a source of hope and a source of light for me when there was nothing else. Hmm. I just want to pause for a minute and just let that soak in. Um, yeah, the atonement goes so far beyond sin and repentance. The atonement is healing, which, by the way, is also repentance. It's a healing process for everything, for everything. Things that we bring on ourselves, things that happen to us due to other people exercising their agency poorly, uh, overcoming addiction, everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I I hadn't, up until I had gone to treatment, I hadn't read the Book of Mormon in its entirety. Um, and I wrote that in the beginning of my I just have my short little testimony in the beginning of this, of this book. And I was like, I already have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I've never read the book of Mormon in its entirety. I hope by the end of treatment, I will have read and developed a greater understanding and love for the book of Mormon. I want to love it and want to have the desire to shout it from the rooftops. I love the atonement and the gospel, but I hope to have a more cemented understanding and greater faith. And let's see what happens. And that was January 3rd, 2023. And um, that was the first day I got in treatment was that I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. All I know is that I was promised that if I hold to my savior, it'll get easier. And so that's what I did. I, I you know, printed out um, a picture, uh, picture of the living Christ. I started memorizing the living Christ. I read my scriptures every any chance I could in between meals in between groups. Cause that's, that's all you do is that all you do is eat. There is the worst thing ever. <laughs> it's, it was horrible. Yeah. Um, I would turn to people and I was like, we're eating again. We just ate. Like we just ate <laughs> like an sounds hour. Lot, it was like the MTC. <laughs> we're, eating again? we're eating again. Holy smoke. We just finished reading the scriptures and we're eating again. <laughs> It's <laughs> so, like in between groups and eating and all that I, I would just open this book and I would just like I it became a habit of mine to um, begin highlighting every word every mention of Jesus Christ because this was my only source of hope and I was like if I have to rely on the Savior I'm gonna make sure I get everything I can and I'm gonna do everything I can I was praying at every meal I was just like please help me finish this <laughs> um I was and I had so many girls around me that were just the most wonderful examples to me of, of relying on the Savior. And I'd love to say their names, but I don't know if they would be like, yeah, go ahead and shout out my name that we were in treatment together. Yeah, you um, know who you are. Right, right. You guys are my favorite people. <laughs> um, but like, 
you get those examples of just like, yeah, they were rock bottom too. But like, I look over and I see that you're studying um, in in the Old Testament, which is like, I think that's what we were studying that year. Um, and I'm just like, oh, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. Let me turn to my Book of Mormon. And so I just had these most wonderful examples. But it turned into something, it turned into something that I was excited to partake in. Like, I did not want to go to lunch. That's the last thing I wanted to do. But if I could finish lunch, then I could go back and I could read in my Book of Mormon and I could read about Mosiah. And that was something that I just loved about it was I just loved Mosiah. So King Benjamin in chapter two, he talks about how he's so imperfect. He's got stage fright and he's like trying to talk to his people. And he like, I think it's chapter two, verse 30 um, of Mosiah. And he's like, I am like shaking right now in front of you. Yeah, it says, for even at this time, my whole frame doth tremble exceedingly while attempting to speak unto you, but the Lord God doth support me. So it's like the God take God takes imperfect people and he takes their willingness. And if you just take that first step, he'll support you. It's like, you just have to show that faith. And for a long time, I didn't hear, I didn't feel the spirit. I was like, I am doing all these things. I am, I am, I can't go to church. I can't go to the temple. I can't take the sacrament, but I'm doing everything that I can. Like, why aren't you, why aren't you, you uh, like you said, this was going to be easier. Like, why isn't this getting easier? And it had less to do with God taking this burden off of my shoulders. And instead of that, it created more of a, a firm understanding of what the atonement could be, if that makes sense. So, oh man, even when Lehi is is um, dying, talking to his sons, he says to Jacob that um the Lord, like you know the Lord God, like you know Him, and He has been your support, and like oh I just love that. Um, oh uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so it reminds me of Joseph Smith in, um when he is in Carthage. Okay. Carthage? Yeah, and DNC. In Carthage at one point, yes. Yeah, one, in 122, 123, and he's like, dude, what the heck? Like, the saints are being persecuted. I'm miserable. Like, like what's going on? Like, where are you? And um, uh, he just says that I will, I will consecrate your afflictions for your gain. And it's like, even if it wasn't the easiest thing in the world that I did, I gained a lot from it. I gained mm. a testimony of my savior that I can share with other people. I'm working on putting my mission papers in right now. And um, I had to wait a year from the last time I engaged in behaviors, which is actually January. So January 3rd, I can put my papers in. And um, even if I didn't have a concrete testimony of my savior before I went into treatment, I definitely had one when I got out. I started writing practice P-Day emails to my family as kind of a way to get excited about the mission, um, even though it ended up getting pushed back like month after month after month. It just kept getting pushed back. Um, it was it was a source of like, you know, here's this little thing that I learned this week in the Book of Mormon, and I just want to share it with you. It like I, I developed a love for the Book of Mormon and for my savior because this is just, this is entirely about the savior. Like this is like, it's it's not about, I mean, it's wonderful stories about Nephi and, and Mosiah who lived in the Americas, but this is just, it says another Testament of Jesus Christ. And that's all it is. 
so I think when you start reading the Book of Mormon and you start developing a love for that, you develop a love and understanding and knowledge of who the Savior is and the power of his atonement. And I think a lot of times people um, kind of disconnect the atonement from Jesus Christ. The atonement was because of Jesus Christ. That healing and that hope comes from Jesus Christ, not the atonement. So that hope and that that light is from Jesus Christ. So. There, as you're talking, a lot of thoughts have come to my mind, but one of them was there's the story that we often tell around the 24th of July of Martin Harris Handcart Company. And I forget who the story is there in the Salt Lake Valley. And one of the members of the company is in the in a Sunday school meeting. And they're talking about how horrible it was that the church leaders let this company go and uh, the atrocities and things. And he stands up and he says, you don't know what you're talking about. The price that we paid was a privilege to pay. Now, that's a serious uh, paraphrase. But I just... When I hear you powerfully bear your testimony and when I feel the, your spirit and your conversion and your confidence, I think to myself, I, I'm so sad that you struggled with an eating disorder, but if that is the price to pay to get to know the Savior, I, I want to speak carefully because it is your experience, but from my perspective, it was worth the price. Absolutely. And right as you said that, I thought of it. Um, one of my my roommate actually at um, Center for Change here in Utah, um, she's a return missionary, um, got sent home early. One of the strongest people I've ever met and will ever meet. She is one of the kindest human beings I have ever met and will be so forever grateful for her. Um, she, she reminded me of just recently just struggling with the mission being pushed back. She reminded me of a, the story of the woman um, with the disease of blood and mm-hmm. how, um, man, I just cannot imagine just going through your whole life, just seeing doctors and physicians and just never getting healed and just never getting that. And just to feel like just so hopeless, just like, I'm just going to be sick forever. But then as like her whole, she goes her whole life feeling this way. And then as she sees like Jesus Christ walking through the streets, and she just says, if I can just touch, if I can just touch him, like, I could be healed. She went her whole life feeling hopeless and like, but to have that one moment to be healed by Jesus Christ. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? Like, it feels like all of that pain and all that, that hopelessness and that heartache would have been so worth it to have, to see the Savior, Jesus Christ, and to be healed by him. So, uh I just love that. Yeah. In closing, what would you say to 12-year-old Sarah? It's worth it. Um, that The worst day in the world. When you just didn't want to be here anymore and you just wanted to hide away, I promise that there was a reason for it. And even if you can't see it now, the the sister that you're going to be teaching, you know, for 18 months or when you're on that mission, however long it's going to be, the sister who needs to hear your experience is going to be worth it. Or the, the life that you're going to be able to change as a nurse, it's going to be worth it. Um, 
all because of this heartache and this pain right now, someone is going to get the chance to feel hope again. So just keep going.